on the streets again. Turn me on, I'm hard to stop. Something you never forget. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I'm your host, comic Nick Munez. It is our April edition, an annual tradition. We go on a world tour this year. Neil Strauss taking us to the top with the dirt. Motley Crue, red hot. We are making our way through the music machine this month. Hitting the road with one of the hardest rock bands of all time. These guys are known for fast and loud. The cadence for the show. Last year we learned the legacy of Kiss. These were a couple Jewish guys, Kaim Whites and a half-deaf kid who were able to troubleshoot the music industry. This year we have the four most decadent lunatics who somehow survived. These guys haven't experienced. These brothers went to war together. Nicky, Mick, Tommy, and Vince. Each chapter is taken from a different guy's perspective. They shouldn't be alive to tell the tale. They're doing a reunion tour right now. Paid the price, lost lives along the way. Nicky is the wrangler for the band. He put it all together. He renounced his name at 20 years old, was an abused child, had no place in the world other than leading this crew. Mick, the Martian, Mick Mars. He is the talent without the looks, also known as the old man. He had ankylondi spondylosis, some terminal illness. He made a deal with the devil and he could rock harder than Ace Freely. Tommy on the drums, Tommy Lee, everybody knows this guy, still upholds the fame compared to who else is a better uh, hard rock drummer to this day? Travis Barker, all the millennials, doomers are going to say. Tommy Lee invented the hovering drum set. He went upside down in a roll cage. And then we got the heartthrob, the lead man Vince. He's a California kid with beach blonde hair. Had his own troubles with temptation as we will get into car wrecks, heroin overdoses today. This is a topic I love. I mean, music. I'm in these Prague rock discord groups. You know, Prague, I like to stay up to deck on the Czechoslovakian rock stars. Progressive rock. Punk doesn't exist anymore. There's no one who's spitting anger. These guys just wanted to rock. They stuck to their guns. You really don't see anybody coming out of the gates <laughs> firing on all cylinders like these guys where they put a muzzle on their chicks. Honey, this music is too loud. They wanted to fucking blow the lid off the clubs every night, made waves in the L.A. scene and got picked up and spread out by the machine. Let's go about the author here. One of the boys, a regular on the channel, Neil Strauss, born in 1969. He's only 52 years old. Love to see what else is this guy going to do in his lifetime. He wrote that book called The Truth we're going to have to have on eventually. He's known for writing for the Rolling Stones magazine, covered Kurt Cobain, Madonna, obviously went on tour with Motley Crue, Wu-Tang Clan, friends with Tom Cruise, Gwen Stefani, Stephen Colbert. He also went on tour with Marilyn Manson, known for his work ghostwriting popular autobiographies, and he's actually, his name's on the cover of the Kevin Hart one, I <laughs> think Kevin Hart's like stealing the names of other people with prominent podcasts if you're staying up to date with he's on another planet he doesn't even know what else is happening in comedy Motley Crue they stayed touched to their roots the whole time <laughs> drugs and partying Jack Daniels Neil Strauss he wrote Emergency this book will save you I saw for like two bucks on Amazon ordered it it's a number three bestseller about tax evasion fits him perfectly for the show 2011 he wrote everybody loves you when you're dead another one about like the afterlife of celebrities you get even bigger after you die 2015 the truth it's called an uncomfortable book about relationships game broke a thousand views it's a new york times bestseller you can expect to see that in the future this ain't the last and neil and he launched his own true crime podcast in 2019 called to live and die in la 
about Adia Shabani, somebody who got like a serial thing. He's trying to grift off that movement. It's a 12 chapter book, each chapter split into the band members. It's a journey we're going on today. Chapter one, The Motley House. You'd think I'd be sipping on a Jack and Coke. I got friggin' lukewarm, no iced water. Let's do this, baby. Neil Strauss, every time he starts a book, he's just got to throw you right into the middle of the action. And then we'll get to the backstory. It's not exactly a linear plot line. And this chapter is told primarily by Vince, blonde lead singer. It's 1981. You're in the middle of L.A. There's kids from the valley to Venice Beach packing out the Sunset Strip every single night. And only one gang can run the party scene, the turf, all the clubs. It's valuable time. So the Motley crew was a great name, great marketing. We'll go through the origin of the name. They intended to make a name for themselves. And what better way to do it than the Motley House? Whiskey a go-go. It's uh, literally right on the strip. And right up, I drove by it when I was there. I already read the book, had to learn about it. The Motley House, it's this old, shitty, white apartment. (laughs) You would hate to have lived next to them. These guys, they nailed the door shut because the cops would come by every night. You had to enter through a window. This is the headquarters, baby. Vince, he's crawling through the window one night, and there's an absolute rager going down graphic stuff going on. I mean, if you play, it's on Netflix, it was really popular. There's like teen girls wearing Motley Crue t-shirts again. Vince walks in, there's a chick squirting all over the carpet. I think we're more than five minutes in. We're past the YouTube censors. It's going to get much worse. Underage women, it's going wild. People have got (laughs) snow on their nose. Vince and Tommy were roommates and he's in there with a girl that they call Bullwinkle. Her face looks like a moose. And Tommy, he's a lover. He's head over heels for this chick. He's been chasing her up and down the sunset strips. He can never break things off, even though he could have just about any of these young girls. All oh, they're just trying to... They're groupies. Bullwinkle in the middle of a party is running around breaking dishes, trying to steal drugs from single guys there, trying to make Tommy jealous. Vince, he grew up in Compton, and he's like, I've never seen anything this violent. Control your lady. She broke a window, another one that just went unfixed for months. Middle of a party. Whiskey a go-go. They just did three nights. They don't even have a record deal at this point. They know they're all sacrificing their quality of living. They want to be rock stars. They're living in complete filth. (laughs) They would use hairspray with a lighter to kill cockroaches. Axe body spray, much better for that. That's how they got Bullwinkle out. They just did an old-fashioned flamethrower. They said their primary Coke dealer also lived in the building, but every time he'd come by, he would eat their hot dogs. Wouldn't even warm them up. (laughs) This guy's blasting lines and deep-throating dogs. Nikki and Vince would date girls who worked at grocery stores just so that they could steal food, but they would always buy their own booze as a matter of pride. They lived there for nine months, and that was when they made the biggest ripple. Never once cleaned their toilet, weren't able to use the patio. The bathroom was different colors. This place was a friggin' fun house. They're putting different color hairspray in every night. Everything is stained. Shit-caked socks festering over in the garbage can. Banned flyers also with poop on them. These guys had no toilet paper there. Going on stage, what's that brown stain on you, Vince? I lived in a shitty college apartment. I remember at one point there was a strain of mold. (laughs) It haunts my dreams to this day. It made it all the way down to the drain of the sink up to the faucet. What the hell was it clanging onto? This was anti-gravity mold. I could have made a scientific discovery. Had a Pulitzer. BLM. They just got a peace prize. (laughs) Nine months these guys put up with this. Diamond Dave. David Lee Roth came through there. They had like famous people at these... Again, how could you get any better than 10 steps away from the whiskey a go-go? It was their own green room. (laughs) They learned how to inject cocaine there. The final straw for Vince was when he came home to Tommy, porking some 300-pounder in his uh, Jaguar XJS. Super fancy car, just going whaling in it. Mick didn't live there. He's the old man. The furthest he would ever take his debauchery was just smashing down a shot glass after he drank it he 
wasn't overly crazy just for the point of because you're a rock star because you have to Mick is a rational so he doesn't fit in always on the outskirts I don't know man you gotta have this period there's enough testosterone in this apartment to start a hundred heavy metal bands so let's hear from Mick's point of view he hated the idea of getting caught so he was paranoid at these parties and he's like I don't care about being a criminal the only thing that makes you a criminal is getting caught he was the counterculture he like identified with the fans more than any of the other three guys who were just kids he's only like five years older he's 24 they're 19 at the time he thought Bullwinkle was unhinged he thought all their girlfriends were possessive he's like you know these girls just hook up with every other band that comes through and they're like of course we're Eskimo brothers with everybody in this city he's like I have some self-respect Mick thinks Earth is a uh, prisoner planet, and he's actually an alien. But here, cursed. <laughs> he dresses like Slash. He's a real character. Let's go to chapter two. Born too loose. This one starts with Nikki's point of view again, getting into his childhood as he started this damn thing. He burnt his uh, identity card, changed his name to Nikki Six. He was beaten mercilessly as a kid, Frank Ferrara. He had a revolving door of stepdads the first one was the most notable taught him how to brush his teeth up and down same way you strum a guitar also taught him discipline with a firm backhand he had a really bad childhood he had to fill the hole with rock and roll and harder things later on his mom was always yelling at him she was like psychologically abusive she would go why do you think your dad never called you back and even as a kid he was smart though he's like mom he left when I was two. He left you. He didn't leave me, but that still stung him. He was like, why didn't my mom call me? And the day he changed his name from Ferrara was he called the dad really drunk, and the guy was like, never call me again. I don't know who you are. I don't have a son. Renounced his surname, now Six the Rockstar. It's pretty badass. His name spread through the L.A. scene, too, because people knew he was taking it seriously. His mom actually dated Richard Pryor for a while, he just wanted to try to get his mom's attention. There was a really bad story. He stabbed himself through the arm to get Dyfus called, his mom arrested. And what do they say? Across the street for attention, up the street to get hit. He was trying to kill himself. It was like the undertone in the book and in the movie. Stitched it up, and then he told the cops, like, yeah, I'm sticking to my story. Mom stabbed me. And the whole thing was like, I don't take orders from you anymore. I'm a little kid rock star living here. Yada, yada, yada. Hard childhood. <laughs> That's what it takes to be living on the streets just to try to play guitar. He was homeless in Seattle for a while. His girlfriend Mary got him real turned on to music in high school. What was the concert they went to? Jimi Hendrix. And he was like a football playing kid, so he had the perfect mix of angst and psychedelia. Mick at the time as a kid he was like working on a farm had a bunch of brothers never fit in with all of them just got addicted to his guitar he liked Kiss as a kid in their early stages even like a later past Dr. Feelgood Motley Crue is just pumping out the hits same thing with Kiss but Black Diamond in the beginning they showed Nikki Six also had Kiss albums as well people give me so much shit for that last year gotta defend myself a little bit they hit a low point Obviously, in their own cruddy bands, they meet each other in the next chapter, so let's skip ahead. Chapter 3, Toast of the Town, this one's called. And we are introduced to Tommy Lee, the drummer. Since his childhood, he admits to being a hopeless romantic, had some wealthy parents. His dad married his mom within a month of meeting her. She didn't even speak English, but she was some academic. He used to peek through the girls' windows in the neighborhood. He would always, like, chase off his babysitters. <laughs> Couldn't trust him. He would wear his sister's leggings all the time. He admits that he found his mom attractive. This guy is a creep, but mom was like a fucking Greek supermodel. Goddamn Aphrodite in the movie. Tommy got a koi pond tattoo as a teenager. He knew he always wanted to have one in his house. And he's going, you can't predict the future but you could take it hostage and bring it somewhere. He approached Nikki after a show in order to get an audition. Tommy, he wasn't the sports-playing kid, though. He wouldn't have matched in with Nikki. He was in the uh, marching band, but that taught him how to do these little drumstick-twirling maneuvers. High school, Bully, like, knocked his nose into his cheek, punched him so hard 
that he had to move across town. But again, wealthy family were moving it across town, probably nicer house in the hills. And he gets the garage. They didn't condone him trying to be a rock star, but they gave him all the tools. He met that girl, Bullwinkle, at one of these earlier shows. She wasn't even uh, really relevant, <laughs> but he probably would have married her had she not thrown plates at that party at the Motley House. Nikki, again, he got approached by Tommy after a show, and they were looking through the wanted ads, and they saw a mixed listing. It's a friggin' stroke of fate. They came across him on the same night, invited him to an audition, and they kicked out this kid, George, and they shit on him a little bit later. But these three guys now, they obviously need a singer. It's probably the most important point, because if you know the history of Molly Crew, Vince leaves the band later on, and they fucking tank without him. He's got some talent. You listen, it sounds like he's squeezing his nutsack, a natural castrato every time he strings. Take me to the top. Just fucking got it. They uh, went to see his band. It was called Rock Candy at a house party. Mick is like, I hate house parties, man. I hate young chicks. Rock Candy, that's a shitty band name. Nine times out of ten, shitty band name, shitty band. But they go there, and they're like, fucking who cares what this kid is singing covers? Look what he's doing to those chicks. And you see him, he's a twig. He fucking turns girls on. He's deep throat in the mic. Tommy gets in touch with him after. He's like, who are your sketchy friends? Why would you bring him to this house party? You guys are just chugging a fifth of Jim Bean. Socialize a little bit, and they're like, fuck you. Listen to our mixtape. I know you're going to come. Week goes by. Vince finally comes around, <coughs> and he brings his high school druggy girlfriend. She's a little bit older than him, and she's basically taking advantage of Vince feeding him cocaine and just like, I'll make you a rock star. But this bitch doesn't know how to manage a band like Doug Thaler, Bob McGee. Those guys, we'll meet them later. (laughs) This chick needed to be blown her skirt off. So she goes over, and this is the first time he got all four of these guys in a room with all their equipment at the same time. They play, I think it was a live wire. I'm alive! fast and loud and she's like baby I don't think they're good enough to play with you this stuff is gonna scare the people away Vince knows he's like nah dude these people are trying to go all the way he makes a mick kick George out of the band (laughs) and George is like dude you got a paunch you're trying to be a rock star you got a buzz cut you look like a cis male we're gonna talk about transgender that shit was cool when straight white guys were taking it to an extreme they were like fuck you tell me to wear a suit I'm gonna wear my sister's leggings and a fucking hairband shit was awesome and uh you know it's completely lost now it's (laughs) a shelter for gender dysphoria we encourage people to mutilate themselves without having any talent in music I mean come on here it was hilarious. So the girl, she was like, I don't know, I think you should keep singing cover bands, making five cents at house parties. So they kick her girlfriend out of there. They start thinking of band names. They know they got the magic. It's a big fail at first. Nikki was like, X-Mass is going to be our name. Literally, X-M-A-S-S. He's like, let's use Christ, the birth of the Savior, as all the symbology. It's going to piss people off. It's hard metal. Everyone's like, no, we're not going to be the Christmas band. Tommy was like, let's be the foreskins. Kid's a friggin' waterhead. And Mick is like, I've been waiting a long time to use this band name. Writes out Motley Crew, spells it normal. Nikki takes it, gives it the U, the umlaut over the O, and they're like, hell yeah, Motley Crew, we got it. And then they start just destroying the club scene. They were looking for each other for a long time. It's magic, they found it. This basically gets us back to the beginning of the narrative, The Motley House. And this is how they secured their first gig opening up for Ozzy Osbourne. They got in a bar fight with some drag queens. You know, they bombed a fair amount as well. They had to stand up for each other dressing like queers and, you know, getting called out for it. But they fought. They spit back on people. Ozzy Osbourne, again, picked them up, made it a bit easier. He (laughs) bought their drugs to the next level. Nikki's 22, Mick 25, Mommy 21, Vince 21. These guys are on one of the first cogs of the machine. Let's check in with Nikki again. He's like, we got four male degenerates 
We got female slut energy, and that attracts a whole lot of attention. These girls know how to dress for a reason. Nikki and Vince, they went to the Whiskey A Go-Go, and they were just like... <laughs> Remember in the Chaos Charlie Manson book, he would drive a gold vehicle around, spray-painted gold. They called it the Golden Penetrator, and they just got chicks to spread word about them. Even when they didn't have a show, would go online and be like, fuck this, come over to the Motley House, we'll play an exclusive for you. Nikki was a marketing madman. They were the outlaws of music. And then the 300 yards away, at the same time, this is eventful energy on the Sunset Strip. You got Sam Kinison and the Outlaws of Comedy. Nikki had this German model girlfriend. Irrelevant. Many girls to come. Let's go to chapter four. Shout at the devil! <laughs> this introduces Tom Zutout, their producer. He's just some little rich kid. Got lucky. First band he ever signed is Motley Crue. Who played him in the movie? Uh, the SNL sad guy. Um, while Colin, Pete Davidson, that's his name. Colin, I'm just sad and broke up with Ariana Grande. Think you could write me some more pro-government jokes? Tom Zutout. <laughs> he saw all them play and was like, I see what you do to the women. I see what the town is buzzing about. You guys are the next ones that are probably going to rec- get a record deal. It was for Electric Records, and they gave him something like a five-record deal to start out. And they got the four perfect pieces. Mick is the perfect yang to Vince's glam, so they're not going too over the top with that rock because they started out on MTV, and their shit was really questionable. It just doesn't hold up in this time period. I mean, gender doesn't exist. It would be perfect. <laughs> you look back, it's fucking weird. The music goes fucking hard. If you don't drive around at least once a month and blast some rock music, I can't trust you. Nikki was not going to fail. This was his whole life. Tommy, of course, he was a drumming madman. You don't need ears to be a talent scout. They say all you need in the music industry is eyes. Because, uh... After Kiss, they're like uh, 10 years after. You have to have the bravado and the showmanship now. It's not enough just to <laughs> be a good musician in the music industry. you got to sell. Their first demo deal got them over 10000 bucks. Get taken to Benihana and were kicked out. <laughs> Knocked the chef's hat off, throwing shrimp at it. Their partying kicks up to another level. They got a mansion off the Sunset Strip, and Thursday through Monday, they always had someone entertaining, always chicks on retainer. It's another level from the chicken coop that Kiss had. These guys had a mansion full of women. Vince, May 29th, 1983, he's going, the new wave just died. Rock and roll has taken over for sure. They get invited to a three-day festival, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, Van Halen, and the Scorpions playing there. What are the biggest lineups now? You got Spongle, Glass Animals, The String Cheeses. These are all real band names. <laughs> Listen to that before. These people don't know what they had. Doc McGee, he was managing them at this point. He hated them. He writes intently about, these guys took years off my life. <laughs> they would just bang on random rooms in the hotel, run away with their penises out, tip over the room service tray, throw TVs onto cars. Vince hooked up with Tom Zutout's girlfriend at their first big show. They did 18,000 people during the first shot at the Devil Tour. Nikki, he hooked up with Vince's girlfriend there, who he eventually got engaged to. He hooked up with Tommy's slut girlfriend, too. He introduced her to the parents, and they were like, Who is this chick you met her on the road? What? And that's when he threw it back in the dad's face. He's like, didn't you just meet mom within six days and propose? He's like, but I wasn't a fucking millionaire and 20 years old. They're like, you could put this off. Tommy, romantic, had to get married. They didn't last long. She stabbed him with a pen on the tour bus. (laughs) During their studio time recording Shout at the Devil, for three days straight, they were on an all-night Coke binge. They were ordering ounces at a time. Guys can't even stand up at a certain point. They're falling over, hitting their head on a cymbal. 
they tried some black magic. I mean, the name of the album is Shout at the Devil. If this isn't really influenced by a Ouija board, what are we doing? They were spinning gongs, chanting, Jesus is Satan, backwards. Natas see sausage. Is that gonna... <laughs> I just invited Lucifer into my soul. Tommy's car blew up one of the days that they were doing these satanic chants. They tried more. Vince got in another accident. <laughs> they were like, let's lay off the demonic shit. What does the Bible say? Satan currently rules over Earth in this era. And in order to be successful, you have to praise Satan. You know, it's the chicken or the egg. Do you have to make a deal with the devil to get rich? Or is being a Silicon Valley tech elite so boring that you just start praising Moloch? Chicken or the egg. Wonder why these people do it. Tommy fucking paid his price. He's dating these hell spawns. Uh, what was the name? Ankalandi spondylosis. That thing that Mick has, it literally turns you into a statue. It finds cavities in your bones and solidifies you. And he said his spinal column felt heavy, like he was being weighed down to the ground. He's like, this is a curse. This is not a medical disease. Guy shreds the guitar. Sharon Osbourne became a tour manager in some sense from 83 to 84. Because she saw there on the Osborne track. <laughs> Ozzy fucking hangs in for decades. Tripping off of acid for an entire year. He did a line. Snorts, fire ants. He got what was called butt dollars. So in order to tip people. See how fucking broken they are. How much they value money. So gone off the psychs that he was wearing dresses around. And he would shove a dollar up his ass. It's a piggy bank up there. There's unlimited money. And he would lift up the dress and be like, here's your tip, Buttsworth. <laughs> Who is the least audible person in television history? Ozzy Osbourne from the TV show. Shine, you got all your guitar. You got Bam Margera's dad. And uh, old man from Pawn Stars. Chum, chumway, if you know how to make a deal. <laughs> Those guys could have lasted on the road. <laughs> That's my dream band. These four guys are getting managed by Sharon Osbourne. They got Zootout and Thaler. Let's go to chapter five. Save our souls. Mick, for all the misery that he's in, he still never got into the women on tour. He <laughs> would black out for months at a time. He's just like alcohol. You know, guitars and alcohol mix. I don't know what it is. They need some psychedelics to cure that depression. Jimi Hendrix used to dip his headband in acid. Maybe that's the cure. But then you die at 27 years old. Ask Kurt Cobain. Tommy, he's like, um, these parties are amazing. I wake up at 5 p.m. every day, fall asleep at 5 a.m. in a new city at a strip club, not remembering a goddamn thing. <laughs> But these guys, when they're not on the road, is when they start doing more drugs. That's why this chapter is called Save Our Souls. Something about the momentum was able to keep them going. <laughs> it's not going to be an easy adjustment going back down. Vince was ripping it 65 and 25 mile per hour zones every single night. And they were at a really big house party when he went out with their British lad. And he killed him. They got into a car accident. They got T-boned. Classic Hollywood movie scene. <laughs> They're just jamming out. Why do they need to build this up and make me nervous? <laughs> Unnecessarily loud. It fucking makes you jump. You know it's coming. And uh, Vince, this breaks up the band because it was in the news. They don't break up officially at this point, but everyone's not talking truthfully anymore. They're like, Vince, you ruined it for us. And he's like, this could have happened to anybody. All of us drive drunk every single night. I know. I had to do 30 days in jail. They gave Vince 19 days as long as he stayed sober. How many people have access to drugs in jail? What kind of a stipulation is that? Isn't it knowing you're not going to do drugs in jail? These guys don't pay the price for anything. Doug later on is like, this could have been a giant teaching moment for the band. This is when it seriously went off the rails. They knew there were no repercussions for any of their actions. Vince got cleaned for a while. He's like, I'm done drinking. 
doesn't last forever. He's a fucking rock star. He wants to have fun on tour. He said this is the boringest shit. <laughs> Not being able to drink and being around these guys, it's actually annoying. Nicky had his first panic attack at the time because he heard about the crash and was like, obviously it could have happened to me too. He's doing heroin. When Vince came back to the studio after being cleaned for 19 days, he gave him a bump, you know, and peace offering. It was complete heroin. He starts throwing up. He's like, what the fuck, man? Everyone knows that's not cool. Band's never going to be the same after this. They had their growing phase. <laughs> I mean, they're still rocking hard. Tommy is driving drunk, doesn't learn a damn thing, ripping motorcycles all over town, tearing up people's yards, doing donuts for fun. That's an easy fine to pay off the cops <laughs> when you kill somebody. That's when you got to do a little time. Vince's sex addiction ramped up because he wasn't able to drink anymore. He knew the sobriety wasn't going to last long, but he wrote some good songs in the meantime. I think uh, him and Tommy fight over the rights for Home Sweet Home around this era. Nikki's getting dope sick when they go to tour around Japan. And so he meets up with a Persian heroin dealer. It's supposed to be the good stuff. And these guys aren't on the same wavelength. <laughs> Nikki's talking about, like, his parents still. He's trying to fill that friggin' whatever void. And this guy is like, you know, my dad used to shit on glass tables while hookers were underneath. Like, he's a heroin dealer. What kind of childhood did this kid have? Nikki's like, I'm a pervert, and I've never thought of anything half as fucked up. There's no way that's real. <laughs> this drug dealer, who had him over D for the first time, and they threw Nikki's body into a dumpster. Yeah. They uh, reported on the news he's dead for 12 hours. The EMT stabbed him t with two adrenaline shots in the heart, which you're never supposed to do. This guy's a live wire. Pun intended, he needed a lot of adrenaline to get him back to the level he was functioning at. But now Vince is no longer the fool of the band. <laughs> this guy was just found dead in a dumpster, Nicky. Now he is the shyster. This will take us to our quickest chapter, number six. Girls, girls, girls. <laughs> These guys at a certain point knew they were making strip club music. And this one is a song that you want to hear mud wrestling to. Tommy, he met Heather Locklear at a party at this point. Again, fell head over heels. He confused her with another Heather on TV legitimately. And then she was like, oh, are you uh, Peter Chris?" She called him some other band drummer just to fuck with him. She was always a step ahead. She takes advantage of him. She gets him arrested later on. <laughs> Tommy, head over heels. He's in his loveaholic phase cycle again. They get married, and this was like the biggest day of his life. And he asked Nikki to be his best man, and he was shooting up at his wedding. You got to look at the photos. He's not there, nodding off in all the pictures. Nikki was using four times a day. A couple thousand bucks a day in heroin. His accountant chimes in. They said he was trying to kick the habit because, you know, he already died once. <laughs> but that's not enough. You know, it fucking has its talons in him. He was, like, describing it as a woman that he fell in love with. Heroin. She's the perfect heroine. Comes close to kicking it. Until he learned about speed balls. Melt a little bit of cocaine into your fucking heroin spoon. That's what killed Belushi. <laughs> he even got hooked on methadone while trying to quit. Had multiple chances to try to ask for help. It's gonna learn the hard way again. Let's go to chapter 7. Our best friends are drug dealers. Checking back in with Mick, who grew up with a few brothers, believes in reincarnation. And he believed that he was born to play music. And throughout all of his lives, he was known to keep a beat. He played banjo as a little boy. Always was strumming a toy guitar when he had the chance. His dad was a minister and was diagnosed with the same bone disease that he had. So he knew he had to try to make moves as a kid. At 14, he became a bit of a prodigy in his town playing guitar. And he moved to L.A. This guy was destined to make it. And he was able to stay positive for a pretty long time, but the ups and downs of, I don't know, <laughs> being that successful, most of us will never know. Had him at the bottom of a bottle. There was a 
thing in the book where him and Vince would shoot up Jack Daniels. <laughs> they were just getting creative with their syringes and they said that when you put it in your veins after a while you could taste it in the back of your neck it's like you have a tongue in your jugular veins or something that was pretty wild shoot up some Jack Daniels it's efficient <laughs> save money on booze these guys have no reason to be doing this they've done everything except for fucking homosexuality they say rock stars at a certain point kiss was like putting their penises on each other's shoulders that was a game they had they weren't banging dudes these guys were shooting up fucking jd they weren't big marijuana users i think it's because it's past 70s at that point and it was stigmatized with the hippies they're like a working man's band why Mick relates with all the fans so much. He's drunk all the time, angry, old. So people need to rock out, relieve some tension. These guys are too far gone. They've done it all. They're shooting up. Goes home from the hospital, uh, Nicky, and he kills himself again, shooting up. You'd think uh, he would have learned the first time, of course, but he makes all of the band promise to go to rehab at the end of this chapter. Take us to number eight. Our best friends were drug dealers. This one starts with Doc McGee. And he starts out saying the biggest regret of his was not making Vince feel more accountable for the car accident. He says it could have saved the band. And of course they put out maybe smoking in the boys' room at this point. (laughs) But Vince is the only sober one. He's like, this isn't good music, man. I'm the only one that's sober. I know this sucks. I'm selling it out there. Doc McGee, he's like, I got a tattoo for you guys, and it said Entertain or Die, because that was supposed to be the original name of Theater of Pain. Mick named it and then rechanged it, so he had to get the tattoo changed. It's pretty symbolic for this point in time. Entertain or Die, when they're not on the road, they start killing themselves with drugs. And you know, that's the thing for the jester. If you're not funny enough, the king will kill you. <laughs> Doc McGee knows for these types of people, you guys, I'm going to put you all to work. And they all blow through their money as fast as they spend it. You would think they would want to be on the road more. He called it full contact management. (laughs) He would fucking handcuff Tommy Lee to the bed at night (laughs) because he knew he would go terrorize other hotel stayers just for fun. (laughs) These guys, they took full advantage. Ding dong ditching as an adult you gotta be decadent they lived their brand even he would get out of control sometimes Doc had to put him in his place Tommy was the first one to check himself into rehab he knew his drinking was a problem he uh, was smoking heroin I don't even know how you do that (laughs) figured it out he wanted to get his vitality back get re-addicted to sex he uh, got busted with a porn star and that broke him up with Heather Locklear So their sex addiction comes out one way. Mick, he even agreed to the rehab, even though he knew this type of guy, an alien, he's like, this is mumbo-jumbo. I will do it for my brothers, but I'm going to sneak a whole lot of nips into this rehab facility. He's like, everyone was so young that we haven't had the ability to begin our lives. We were just being torn apart by psychologists here. I don't know if that's the best thing either. He did ditch drinking throughout the rehab period jokes aside the deal that they made was everyone had to be sober in order to start a new album and Mick said I'll give up booze for that long too which he doesn't (laughs) but he's like when you're a child be a child when you're a man be a man this is a new era for the band we got a detox too so next week this is going to be Alan Carr's How to Stop Smoking It's going to be a fun addition, kind of like a listicle show, and to help anybody who may have relapsed from the romanticization today, Nikki was terrified of sobriety his whole life, but he actually does well with it. Starts like turning down chicks as well. He's like, even that's a distraction. I need to focus on the music. He's kind of like Paul Stanley, who got real focused in the later half, starts taking all kinds of lessons, (laughs) goes on to be a Broadway actor. Nicky got on Prozac. He got addicted to sleeping pills, too. That was Vince's thing because he couldn't drink anymore. He's realizing that being sober in the studio is, like, making them a better band. He's like, we've never recorded 
well before even Nikki starting to realize it. Tommy relapsed after the rehab and he had to do time in jail was sentenced to life in prison in the Caribbean because he got caught with the biggest coke dealer on the island (laughs) Tommy is now the ass of the band but he weaseled out of his sentence of course life in prison and he went straight to the decade of decadence tour that was his punishment (laughs) this one wins the number one album it had Dr. Feelgood on it You could tell that song's a little more mainstream or something. Hollywood. Fucking rocks, though. He's gonna be your Frankenstein. I got one thing you'll understand. Doc McGee. He was done managing the band. He quit. (laughs) Even after the rehab, he's like, I got him clean. This is not worth... One of the last straws was he tried to reintroduce Nikki's mom. This had him relapse again. She's like, I thought you were my friend, but you're just another leech trying to take my money in the system. This was the last strand. Pretty metal. Even after they got sober, they kicked out management, the fucking suits. Hell yeah, baby. And I think this is when uh, Vince got in that fight with Axl Rose. They were friends with David Lee Roth, but they couldn't keep it together with the fucking British rock bands. Let's go to chapter nine. Don't go away. Neil Strauss gave some really good insight here into the music industry. And of course, all musical artists that you have ever heard of get put through the machine. He said stage one of the platform is the conveyor belt. And it's all the young artists waiting for a chance. He says you got to time your jump at the end of the conveyor belt. And that way you could land on the first cog. And that's what Molly Crew did. They were in the theater scene. And they got in that 18,000 person theater rocked it went on to stage two and he said some people have a degree of success here but a lot of people flunk out he said the bigger cogs turn as you get involved they were on around shout at the devil at that time stage three cog number two a long way down from there he says mainstream popularity sets in at that point they already made it through the other side they've been canceled before stage four strauss called the big cog He says it's the grinding gear that either puts you up or it doesn't. So it's like Mariah Carey, the Backstreet Boys, Eminem. You can't get off this cog. (laughs) People are saying Eminem is a clone after Love the Way You Die. All that Rihanna shit, nobody could trust him. Britney Spears has that meltdown. There's no way off the big cog. You have to be torn down from the graces. That's what we do as a culture. And the Decade of Decadence tour is supposed to be the biggest one that they've ever had. Nerve-wracking. Did well enough. Took them to stage five, The Crusher, where they're saying the only way out is to die. Literally die. Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Janis Joplin. Ultimately, you lose either way, so you better hope you're not shooting up all your money while you have it. Michael Jackson. That guy's worth more dead than alive. You know, they're going on their reunion tour now. So maybe Neil Strauss is missing the reincarnation cog where you can make money if you wait it long enough. Doug Thaler picked them up. New manager. Went out to L.A. with Doc McGee to see if they were the real deal. And so he took over at this point is putting up with the nonsense. We're all the way up to 1991 here and they got to tell Vince that he is not welcome at practice if he's drunk. You see pictures of Vince at this time, and he looks like a potato, like he's all bloated. So they have that classic argument. Nikki says that he kicks him out, but Vince is like, you can't kick me out, I already quit. That was when they had Mama Coming Home, whatever song that one is, popped off, and Vince goes real bad here. He starts relaxing hard into drinking because they saw the band signed John Kabarabi. John Karabi, that other singer who they start going back from arenas to theaters so this guy was not the answer but it still puts Vince in a darker place and they milked this in the movie for way too long he has a sick kid and Vince is like this is against the rules of the universe this isn't supposed to happen all the guys go to the bar they have a little reunion to try to get him back because they knew they were failing without him so it all kind of works out uh, Nikki was like, I've never had a family. This is the only thing I've ever wanted. They had to kick <laughs> John Karabi out of the band. Him and George need to start 
the Motley Crew too. Tommy saw it happen a hundred times. He's like Vince. Um, I've loved and lost. <laughs> Terrible comparison, Strauss. Dead kid. This guy made it back to Rockstar from that point. Vince, his uh, wife left him too. Maybe the kid was the only thing keeping them together. So Tommy was able to help him through that. Good thing he had the boys. There probably could have been a bad ending for Vince at that point. Pretty quick hiatus though when they weren't together. Everybody's got to have that big reunion. It sells tickets at a certain point. So let's go to chapter 10. We're in the falling action now without you. So I guess a little more time here without Vince. People weren't showing up to the tours, as I just said. It's going to be a super quick one. Nikki fired Doug Thaler, the replacement for McGee, on the uh, John Karabi tour. Thaler was the guy who put on Duran Duran. They said the Karabi tour was able to keep him together for a long enough time just because he was like a kid. Like they were reliving their own first experience through him. We got to hear from Karabi a little bit here because this guy was tossed to the curb. He said since he started, he was getting death threats from women. <laughs> he was saying these guys made a terrible name for the band on the way and they thought that he was the previous singer. Like some of these groupies didn't even know the members' names, so he was getting death threats. He said... Within a two-year period, he was thinking that farts were musical instruments because these guys were so idiotic. He said after being kicked out, he didn't know if he could start his own fucking Joe Karabi experience. Doug Thaler set him up for a little bit. It's basically the end of his story. Vince got in. Everybody was excited for the reunion. Dr. Feelgood sells a shitload. That was their first number one album. Takes us to chapter 11. The guns, the women, the ego. Tommy, he's dating a chick named Bobby at this point. So I guess he's done with Heather Locklear. <laughs> this is the girl from the video. She's my cherry pie, the fucking strip club song. He is living his best life out here. He's f still falling in love with sex workers. He's still not learning anything from the 1980s. This chick, Bobby, goes crazy on him. She gets him arrested for assault. <laughs> she had a couple people testify against him. But Tommy was, like, way too drug sick at the point to defend himself. He couldn't get custody of a child, so they made him do some jail time until he cleaned up. He said that Bobby had a gangster try to kill him in county jail. <laughs> it's running into bad circles. You gotta be with... Like, Nikki told him, date some chick that gets it at that point. Still out, cheating up and down the town. Nikki can't keep a goddamn marriage together. He got caught cheating with a porn star in Hawaii. So none of these guys, it's a theme throughout the book, learn from each other. Some guy gets caught on tape having sex, and it's in Hawaii. The other person has a lover. It's their epic flaw. Tommy now met Pamela Anderson, that he's single. Head over heels for the 50th time. He was on ecstasy when he met her. Maybe that has something to do with it. She teased him for six weeks. It's the longest he's ever had to wait. And he's like, your Hollywood career is bullcrap. I got enough money for you to never do that again. Who is... I don't know these people. I'm sorry. Pam Anderson. Sounds like a hot name. Followed her to Cancun when she was working. And she's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm not leaving till you come with me. Check back in with Nikki. He's trying to make Generation Swine. This is one of their later albums, named after some Hunter S. Thompson reference. And Tommy's putting him on blind dates, trying to get him to stop with these strippers. He dates Donna DeRico. For any of the old heads, they have four kids together. <laughs> some redemption for nodding off at Tommy's wedding. Got to have a reunion with the boys. Tommy's coming up with games for how to avoid the paparazzi. These guys are like past success. They are bigger than life. He's with Pamela Anderson. They got two kids. Tommy's not even mad that their marriage is, excuse me, falling apart because uh. Ron Jeremy is offering to produce a film of his. This guy's a freaking idiot. He's going to soil his legacy. They say he's got a foot-long hog. Vince, they said things were going pretty well. And then he decides it's time to quit the band again. But this quit doesn't last long. He was just fed up with all the other guys. He was, like, so sad he couldn't stand the other people being happy. 
guy has a dead daughter. <laughs> dead daughter passed. I quit. And they have a big meeting when he starts canceling shows because he's too drunk. And another rough patch. Ups and downs. Second to last chapter. Tommy here. He got his nipple and his nose ring cut out with bolt cutters. He got the infamous ferenulum. What is that? The back of your dick piercing? No! That'll make you scream like Vince Neil. No, no, no. It's a violation. <laughs> Can't put a ring in your penis. <laughs> what happens when you go through the TSA? What happens if somebody has a magnet? <laughs> Chapter 12. The Hollywood ending. I didn't say happy ending, okay? It's a Hollywood ending. Starts with Tommy. Last time we'll hear from him, the first thing he does when he gets out of prison, again, instead of going home to Pamela, he goes to his buddy's hot tub. And she winds up dumping him. He, like, punches through and breaks his hand, can't drum for a while. This guy, Tommy Lee, he's, like, on the podcast circuit now, and he's dating TikTokers. He had a giant welcome home party from prison with all the band members, known to be uh, Vince's sponsor. But Vince has like 10 sponsors. He's a super alcoholic. And Tommy does stretches of sobriety from time to time. Good for him. Nikki went on to record a solo album. This guy literally has died twice, came back to life. He's seen it all, been to the other side. Pictures of him, he looks like he's the most there, I think, out of them. And he says when he drops his kid off at elementary school, he sees Tommy's sons there. They got a nice little community. As for Mick... He's got the best medical care in the business. He's fighting that spondylosis. But he's uh, there for all the other guys' kids. He's on loads of Zoloft and Wellbutrin. Fistfuls of antidepressants. Can't blame him. Says he suffers from sleep paralysis nowadays. That's a Hollywood ending for you. And then Vince. You see he's having monetary troubles nowadays. But he's with Heidi. Maybe Heidi, I don't know, one of those Heidi's from Hollywood. Still cheating around on her, making it on TMZ. Thought it'd be a happy ending. That is the dirt from Neil Strauss. Thank you, Motley Crue. A truly amazing story. It's going to bring us to next week. We have Alan Carr's How to Stop Smoking. We got a detox from the debauchery that was fucking heavy metal. This guy, Alan Carr, he was a 30-year smoker. He said he smoked 60 cigarettes a day, and he has a flawless method to quit. He sold 20 million copies of this book. It's going to be one of these listicle episodes. We had 22 immutable autos of marketing. Anybody out there that's struggling, share this with a friend. Subscribe. I will see you guys in another week. My name is Nick Muniz. Take it easy. Peace. <laughs>